Welcome to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, Mindful Lawyering, a podcast of the City Bar Mindfulness and Wellbeing in Law Committee, with committee members Amy Latore, Lisa Pademski, and Sue Yi. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Here's Amy Latore. Welcome to Mindful Lawyering, a podcast of the Mindfulness and Wellbeing in Law Committee of the New York City Bar. I'm Amy Latore, and on the podcast today, we are talking about boundaries at work, and specifically, how to set boundaries when you work with direct service clients. Lisa Podensky is an attorney for children at the Legal Aid Society in the Juvenile Rights Practice. Sue Yi has her own immigration practice where she helps clients obtain immigration benefits, green cards, and citizenship. By the end of today's podcast, we hope that you can walk away with some practical tips to help manage healthy boundaries with clients in your own practice. We will end the podcast with a short meditation. Welcome, Lisa and Sue. Hi, Amy. Thank you, Amy. Great having you on the podcast today. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do? and how you interact and serve your clients on a day-to-day basis. Lisa, I know you joined me last time, but for people that are joining us for the first time, why don't we start with you? Thanks so much, Amy. So my days are all very different. Since I represent kids from age zero to 21 in different matters in family court, and I represent about 125 clients at a time, it's a lot to juggle. Any one of those kids can have a crisis at any time. So that's super challenging because my schedule is already filled with court appearances, client interviews, conferences, writing, emails, et cetera. Communication with clients can be via text for teen clients, sometimes email, WhatsApp, phone. Some clients don't have their own phones. So I might hear from a foster parent or a case planner for little kids, or I'm in touch with their caregiver. I have some clients that think I'm always available, so it's pretty varied. Sue, tell us a little bit about the work you do, the clients that you serve. Thanks, Amy. So I am a solo practitioner. Basically, all I do is handle immigration issues for my clients. So this can mean anything from helping a client apply for asylum because they're afraid to go back to their home country, or it could mean helping a U.S. company sponsor someone so that they can employ them in a position here in the United States. I also help family members sponsor their relatives for green cards. I also help green card holders then complete the last stage in the immigration process by applying for U.S. citizenship. And I also help some clients who are fighting deportation. So there's many different ways that immigration can seek to try to remove someone from the United States. Even green card holders are not guaranteed to stay in the United States. So if they have committed a crime, for example, or if immigration later finds out that their green cards were not properly granted, they can actually try to take back their green card. Day to day, you know, the issues that I come across can just run the whole gamut. Right. And how do you communicate with clients day to day? Pretty much through all methods of communication. It really depends on my clients. So I have some that mostly stick to texting me. Other clients who feel most comfortable, the old-fashioned, like calling me on the phone, 
my business clients tend to prefer emails. You know, lately I've been doing a lot of Zoom calls just because of COVID and not seeing as many clients in person. But now that we're kind of at the, you know, I don't want to say the pandemic is over, but, you know, as more and more people are vaxxed and boosted, I've started to open up my office again and seeing clients in person. And it does make a difference if I'm helping a client prepare for their immigration interview or their deportation hearing, the communication can't be replaced over the phone or or by Zoom. So you both have pretty busy practices and you communicate on many different platforms with your clients. So let's take a look at the New York Rules of Professional Conduct. Rule 1.1 for competence states that a lawyer should provide competent representation to a client. Competent representation requires legal knowledge, skill, thoroughness, and preparation reasonably necessary for the representation. Rule 1.3 for diligence states that a lawyer shall act with reasonable diligence and promptness in representing a client. So basically, the New York rules for professional conduct require you to represent each client diligently, promptly, and in a manner that is thoroughly prepared. Now, that takes a lot of time, especially when you have a full list of clients. We've all heard the old adage, you can't pour from an empty cup. But how do you balance the responsibility that you have to ethically represent each client to the best of your ability and still make time for your own well-being? Lisa, thoughts? Yes, it's definitely a challenge. That's why boundaries are so important. Otherwise, I couldn't do my job, avoid burnout, and provide the best representation for my clients. I've been doing this work for well over a decade now. And I have a self-care plan. So when I have a normal schedule of court appearances, conferences, client interviews, etc., I am able to make room for some self-care in my day, even if I'm just using my mindfulness snacks we talked about at our last podcast. However, in my work representing abused and neglected kids in Brooklyn Family Court, there are oftentimes real-life emergencies that occur even on the weekends. When children are removed from their parents' care, We sometimes have emergency hearings that may go day to day and supersedes everything else in my already full schedule. I have to say that when that happens, it becomes more of a struggle to make time for my own well-being. There's an ebb and flow, however, and I try to gird myself when I have more time to focus on self-care. I also make a point to pause, even if it's just for a walk around the block or just to sit and do nothing after a very long day. Sometimes just pausing and doing nothing at all, not work, not yoga, not meditating, is the best self-care when you're overwhelmed. Sue, I imagine some of your clients might not have a safety network to help them while their immigration case is pending. How do you manage clients who may rely on you for help outside of your role as an attorney? Thanks, Amy. So this is an excellent question. And I would say that definitely when I was a younger attorney, I kind of struggled with this part. I felt like I had to kind of be everything to my clients. So in addition to helping them with their immigration problem, if they were oftentimes victims of domestic violence, or if they were suffering from the effects of having been persecuted in their home country, I would take it on myself and then feel as if I had to come up with a solution to address any mental health issues that my clients were going through. 
And over time, I, I learned that this was really not the right approach for me as the attorney. I was starting to feel compassion, fatigue, and burnout. And for my clients, I'm not the best equipped or trained. So what I've done through experience and trial and error is to try to provide my clients with resources where, let's say, they are struggling with stress, anxiety over their immigration status. Um, a lot of my clients don't have immigration status, and that's a huge stressor. What I do as their attorney is I try to encourage them to seek counseling or therapy in some of the more, my clients who have faced more extreme experiences, you know, I've referred them to mental health experts to get the assistance that they need. Great. That's so necessary. Thanks, Sue. Lisa, I know that some of the clients you work with might not have adults to help them. Um, and they might try to rely on you for outside help, outside of the traditional attorney-client relationship. How do you handle this? That is a challenge. And boundaries are especially meaningful with my teenage clients who may not have resources or adult connections, especially for those living in group home settings. Early on in my career, I had more issues in keeping my boundaries. The longer I've done my job, the more I've come to learn that in the long run, blurred boundaries don't help my clients or me. They lead to burnout for me and also a confused attorney-client relationship. There are certain times in certain specific situations of crisis where I may need to check my work phone late, or even on weekends, but these are limited events with a limited time frame. When I'm not presently dealing with an emergency, I shut off my work phone and computer after work Friday and put them away until Sunday evening or even Monday morning. The most important thing is to convey these boundaries and sometimes potential limited exceptions very early on in meeting or speaking with my clients. You both serve populations of people who may have been through trauma or often in the midst of crisis. And this is a theme that we want to address in a later podcast as well. But if you can share with me, how do you deal with the emotional aspect of assisting clients in such a vulnerable communities? Amy, yeah, it's, it's really challenging and really important. It is really tough sometimes. There are certain people who cannot do jobs like mine for whatever reasons, though. So I realize that the fact that I have been helping people in different capacities most of my life means that I can't. I take this message first and foremost as a lesson and a gift. The fact that I have worked with kids at their most vulnerable and I've done it for so long reminds me how resilient I can be. It also reminds me how important it is for me to be able to continue to do the work I do. To do that, I do need to take care of myself, put on my mask first kind of thing. Therapy is an important part of this for me. Dealing with abuse of children on a daily basis and the associated trauma calls for professional help. Self-care has its limits. Also, awareness about the language around trauma, compassion, fatigue, and burnout is vital. I think the fact that I've been doing trainings and creating resources at Legal Aid around this issue since 2009 is also key. I sometimes can be preparing for a presentation, and even though I know this topic so well myself, I catch myself noticing that I'm currently dealing with some of those key issues myself. At that point, I pause and take stock and see what I can do to help bring some more balance, even if that's just changing my mindset sometimes. Sue, how do you deal with the emotional aspect of assisting such vulnerable communities in your work? Thank you, Amy. That's definitely one of the most challenging aspects of the work that I do. 
you know, immigration law, oftentimes there's so much at stake, clients' ability to stay in the United States. Sometimes family, me family members are potentially split up if some relatives don't have any immigration status. So, you know, most of my clients do go through a fair amount of stress and anxiety throughout the process, which in some cases can take years, even several decades. So for me, I try to use some tools on a daily basis to just kind of keep my cup full, right? And like not run out of gas. It is, after all, it's like a marathon and not, not a race. So when I get caught up as well, you know, and get stressed out in the middle of the day, I try to take breaks. I try to take an actual full lunch break and not just try to eat lunch in 10 minutes. Sometimes that can't be avoided. If I'm not able to take a full lunch, I'll try to make up for it later by taking a walk outside and being in nature and seeing the sun. Little things like that make a huge difference, you know, because cumulatively, if you give yourself, if you're kind to yourself, you know, in little ways throughout the day, that makes a huge difference as opposed to feeling as if there's never enough time in the day and then you have to try to get as much done as possible because, Let's be honest, the work is never over, right? At the end of the day, there are always going to be a list of things that you didn't get to, and that's okay. It's not a question of being as productive as possible, but how do you use your limited time and resources uh, wisely so that you don't always feel like you're know, in a race against time and trying to get as much done as possible? Other things that I do besides taking breaks throughout the day is I try to well, I actually start the day off with a with a yoga practice, and that kind of has put me into a much calmer mindset. Is like if I start the day with a yoga practice, sometimes it's a half hour, sometimes it's a whole hour, but I find that it kind of puts me in in the right frame of mind, I guess, and body to take on the challenges of the day. I also kind of try to know myself in regards to what are the stressors, you know, like what kind of tends to make me feel a little, a little more anxious than usual. And those usually are when I'm seeing clients back to back or if I have too many meetings. So to the extent possible, I try to not let that happen, right? Sometimes you can't avoid it. Like if a court or immigration schedules you for interviews, you're stuck with the day and the time in the day, even if you're supposed to be at three different places back to back, there's not much you can do, but there's some things that you can control. You can kind of set your own schedule as to when to respond to your client's emails and phone calls. Sometimes if a client thinks that something is an emergency, it's not necessarily the case. Subjectively, they may feel that something is urgent, but I think you as the attorney can sometimes help calm your client's fears down and hopefully they can see that what they thought was so urgent is not necessarily as, as like time sensitive as it is. Um, and I, I will say again that this is something that I've learned along the way. It's not something that they teach you in law school or that you inherently know. It's just kind of like know a little, learn more and more by trial and error and practice. Great. These are some great tips from, from both of you. Thank you. And Sue, have you set up and learned along the way some kind of boundaries to set up in your workday to help you maintain a healthy relationship with your clients? Definitely. And I think Lisa touched on a few of these before. Some of them are like time boundaries. I try not to read or respond to emails or phone calls after a certain time. When I was a younger attorney, I always tried to be as responsive as possible. And I thought the sooner I answered a client's question, 
the better of an attorney I am. And over time, I realized that this just kind of feeds certain clients. Some clients are never going to be happy. They're always going to find something to latch on to. Maybe they are anxious by nature. I learned along the way that if you keep giving into this and answering as soon as possible, then you're kind of setting up your clients to expect this from you. So the one day that you can't get back to them right away, then all of a sudden they think something is drastically wrong with their case or that you're not being up to their idea or you know expectation of what a good attorney should be. So a lot of it requires a sense of judgment. Is this really crucial? Do I need to get back to this client right now or can it wait until the next day? I also, when I go home at the end of the day, I try to really unplug and not kind of think about all of the things I didn't get to that day or I can't find a solution to a client's problem. I'll try not to continue working it out in my mind, right? Sometimes you really have to give your brain a rest and voila, sometimes the, the answer will come to you because you've given yourself some mental space to just kind of open your mind up to the possibilities. One thing I also cut out is not working on weekends. That's something else I used to do because I thought this is what a good attorney should be, you know, and if I got some work done on the weekend, then that will make my work week less stressful. It didn't really work. I mean, <laughs> there's always more work. That's that's it. And at some point, you just have to make a judgment call. Like, do I want to take on this uh, new case or client? Maybe not. Maybe it's too stressful or it's too time sensitive and I just don't have this in my bandwidth right now. Thanks, Sue. So Lisa, you mentioned earlier developing a self-care plan. Do you have any recommendations for how to start to develop one? Amy, that's a great question. So I found that a self-care plan is vital to continuing to do the work I do, both in my job as a lawyer for kids and also my role here at the City Bar. I think a self-care plan is just a go-to list, written or otherwise, of things that have worked in the past for me. I've learned through trial and error to listen to what I need at the time. And what works one day for one situation may not work on another day or for another situation. There's a lot of trial and error. It's like creating a recipe book. Some things work in certain settings and some don't. Sometimes you need a shortcut and sometimes you need to shake things up a little bit. I think it's vital to learn how to read your own needs. So take a look at what you do that makes you feel good. And then at times when you're not as stressed, take out a pen and a paper and make a list of those things that make you feel better. Is it meditation? being outside, maybe watching a funny movie, drawing or painting, taking a yoga or spin class. It's different for everyone. For me, in some circumstances, a laugh out loud sitcom is what I need. Sometimes some yoga or a walk or just sitting quietly doing nothing. But I have things I can regularly access, as well as things set into my weekly schedule, including therapy, meditation, yoga, which for me, I do a self-practice, but I'm a yoga teacher, exercise and walks. But in times of stress, and when my schedule seems too full, I figuratively look through my self-care toolkit and pull out what suits best in that situation or moment. A vital tip, as my yoga teacher, Colleen Sademany, always says, any amount. So you both have plans and boundaries in place, but inevitably life happens. So what do you do when emergencies come up? Great question, Amy. So like I said before, I do sometimes have genuine emergencies in my job. 
And when that happens, I do need to drop everything and do what I can do to support and advocate for my client. I usually look at my calendar then and see if barring further emergencies, there's a half day or a day I can take off within the next few weeks as a rest day. That gives me something to work until, knowing I've created a pause in my schedule to refresh. Also, sometimes I just need to really focus on the importance of what I'm doing and the client. I have to focus on the stressful situations my clients are in and focus what I can do, if anything, to help try to facilitate alleviating some of that suffering. There are also limits to what I can do. I need to know when I've exhausted options and think of creative ways to work outside the box. I really enjoy that part of my job when we can bring conflicted parties together to negotiate and come to a possible solution that at least temporarily reduces some levels of conflict or brings resolution to at least some small part of the problem. Great. I love the idea of planning a rest day amidst the emergency. That's very helpful. Sue, how do you handle emergencies when they come up? That's a really good question, Amy. I was just kind of thinking back to the Trump administration when you asked this question, and it's all a haze to me now, but during those four years, it really did feel like every day I didn't know what I was walking into because so many policies were changed at a at the drop of a hat. I mean, literally, you would see the administration bouncing back and forth and contradicting itself. So those were, I would say, the most challenging years in my practice in this field. And there were days when I thought if I can make it to the end of this administration, it would be a miracle. Honestly, a lot of the attorneys in my field were just saying, you know, I'm at my wit's end and I don't know how much more I can I can take of this crazy, chaotic uh, situation that we're in. But I think, you know, although I'm relieved that things are not as dire as they are, as they were back then, it did really kind of force you to realize what are the true emergencies. And of course, with all of instability that was going on during that time, clients were also completely on edge as well. So in their mind, there were you know, whatever they were experiencing, they would characterize as emergencies. But when you're dealing with so many quote unquote emergencies, at some point you have to really kind of triage and realize what has to be taken care of today. And that's that's kind of how I would um, work with all of these various things with, that were all kind of pulling at my attention. I would just kind of distill and make up a list and say, okay, these are the things I absolutely need to get to. I won't look at anything else until these things are done. Kind of how I, you know, to this day, it's it's really brings into sharp focus, you know, what absolutely has to get out. And I think part of this is kind of like my personality as well, but sometimes I need a fire to be lit underneath me to really get me to do the things I need to do. So I sometimes use this kind of like nervous energy to really focus and, and get complete what actually has to go out in that day or in that week and knock on wood it's helped it's it's really gotten me through you know the crisis that was the previous administration but you know it really does help you to let all of the lesser important things kind of fall to the side. So Sue you've talked a lot about bandwidth and now that you're not in constant crisis mode how do you know when to add more to your plate? So in other words how do you know which projects and clients to say yes to now? 
I mean, I think it's kind of subjective. I think for my particular situation, like I'm a solo attorney, so I run my own practice and I have some flexibility in deciding what kind of cases I want to take on and what kind of clients I want to work with. You know, and I will say that in hindsight, when I was a younger attorney and when I first started my own practice or partnership, there was this kind of fear that what if I can't generate enough income to support myself? What if I go into debt? And these are serious concerns. I will say that even even after practicing more than 20 years, I still have these fears, you know? There are going to be periods where I'm extremely busy and there are going to be periods when business is slower and inevitably, right? I think for attorneys who are kind of critical of themselves, they'll be wondering, what am I not doing right? Am I not retaining enough clients? You know, am I a, a terrible marketer or a networker? But I think at the same time, also because I have been practicing for 20 something years, I don't necessarily want to take on every case, right? Sometimes I do see red flags. And if I think a client and I may not click, if it's also about chemistry, like you're not going to be the right attorney for every single client that you meet. That goes into my decision on uh, when and what type of cases, new work I want to take on. Also, the type of work that I want to focus on. You know, I used to handle a lot more deportation cases, and I have the highest respect for attorneys who do handle a lot of deportation defense. But it is also, I find personally, to be the most stressful type of immigration work. So knowing myself, I've limited the number of deportation cases that I take on. Thank you, Sue. And thank you both for all of this advice. And on that note, I'd like to turn to Lisa for a short closing meditation. Thanks, Amy. And thanks, Sue. All right. So we are going to do a brief body scan. So I'd like everyone to find an easy seat in their chair. Find a straight back. That might mean you need to move to the edge of the chair so that your feet can plant firmly on the ground. If you're comfortable, gently close your eyes and rest your palms on your thighs. Receive a breath in through your nostrils, filling your chest, filling your lungs, filling your belly, then sigh it out. Receive another breath through your nostrils, filling your chest, filling your belly. Sigh it out. Receiving another inhale, filling your chest, filling your lungs, filling your belly. Sigh it out. Notice the top of your head. Observe where your hair attaches to the skin. Notice the expanse of your forehead skin. Notice your eyes falling into their sockets. Feel the soft indentation of the skull at your temple skin. Feel your nose 
Notice your nostrils as the air enters with your breath. Sense the skin of your cheeks over your cheekbones. Feel the nape of your neck. Feel the jaw and where the jaw attaches. Feel the moisture inside your mouth, the softness at the corner of your lips. Notice the spread of your collarbones and the movement of breath inside your chest. Notice the movement of your breath inside your belly. Feel the weight of your pelvis on your chair. Notice the heaviness of your thighs on the chair. Feel any ease in the knees. Feel the broadness of your calf muscles. Notice your ankles. Notice the skin on the top of your feet. Notice the heaviness of your heels on the ground. Notice the space under the arch of your foot. Notice your big toe, notice your baby toe. Sense the drop of your arms from your elbows to your wrists, to your palms, resting on your thighs. And again, notice your breath as it enters your nostrils and it goes down your throat fills your lungs with air, fills your belly, and then with a sigh, release it all. And when you're ready, you can gently open your eyes, shake out your hands and your feet, perhaps twinkle your fingers and toes, roll your neck, and come back to the room. Thank you, Lisa. Sue and Lisa, thank you so much for sharing your experience and wisdom with us on the Mindful Lawyering podcast today. Listeners, we hope that this conversation has helped you think about your interactions with clients with greater mindfulness, and that going forward, you can implement some of these tools, not only for your own well-being, but to better serve clients as well. Please visit the Mindfulness and Well-Being in Law Committee page for the latest information on upcoming events. You can also find resources such as previously recorded Yoga for Lawyers and the Mindfulness and Wellbeing Toolkit, which can help you develop a self-care plan. I'm Amy LaTorre, and this is Mindful Lawyering. Thank you for listening to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, or at our website at nycbar.org. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.